0: Turn with me to the book of Esther. If you are visiting us and you do not own a Bible, I believe it is found on page 433 in the Bibles and the Chairs. And if you do not own a Bible, please take that as a gift from us. The book of Esther. This morning we're going to be in chapter 1. If you're able to, please stand in reverence of God's holy word. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. At the end of this time, the king held a week lawless for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and blue linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus' palace. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, Ahasuerus commanded Mehuman, Bista, Harbona, Biktha, Abaktha, Zithar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious, and his anger burned within him. The king consulted to confer with experts in law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Memukin. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. The king asked, according to the law, what should be done With Queen Vashti, since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus' command that was delivered by the eunuchs. Mimucan said in the presence of the king and his officials, all the officials and the peoples who are in every one of King Ahasuerus' provinces, for the queen's action will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media, who hear about the Queen's act, will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. If it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it cannot be revoked. Queen Vashti is to not enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, so all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. The king and his counselors approved the proposal, and he followed Mamukin's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in his own language, that every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. This is the word of God. in a symphony orchestra. You have a composer, one who writes the music, and you have a conductor, and sometimes they may be one and the same person, who are extremely familiar with the music. They're also familiar with the sound of each instrument that is involved in the orchestra. The conductor is the one who leads, and guides the orchestra, dictating the tempo, making known when each instrument is to come in, whether softly or strongly. The conductor is the one who leads the musicians, but they also lead the audience, the listeners, taking them on a journey as the music is going, leading all the way to the crescendo, And oftentimes afterwards, the audience is blown away, not only by the orchestra, but also by the conductor. Sometimes you see the conductor and sometimes you don't. But regardless of whether or not you see them, you see their work. It is evident to all. He is the composer and the conductor of all of human history. He upholds and governs everything to the appointed end that he has determined. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says that God works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. The appointed end that he alone has set is for everything to be united in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. The providence of God is his wise governing over all things, whether it's by decree or him permitting. It's important for us to know that though God is sovereign over everything and his providence is pervasive, he is not the author nor the approver of sin and evil, as stated in our statement of faith. It's important for us to know that it doesn't mean that he His providence doesn't mean that he coerces humanity against their will to do things, because he doesn't. God is sovereign over all, and he uses all things the world, visions, both good and bad, he uses it all to fulfill his purposes. God uses the good, the bad, and the ugly. To make a masterpiece. And for those of us who are in Christ, as we see the providence of God at work, it always leads to the result of reverence and awe. We are enamored by his power, his love, his protection, and his mercy. Scriptures teach that God's sovereignty is pervasive. And in the book of Esther, we're going to see that truth over and over and over again. That God is sovereign over every detail of life. And he's not only sovereign over those details, he's also sovereign of our, over our lives. His sovereignty is not limited. He works all things according to his counsel for his glory and our good. We will see all of this in the book of Esther, but the book of Esther doesn't start there. It starts with a wicked king. And in chapter 1, I have three scenes for us. First, we will see the king flexed. And then we're going to see the king defied. And thirdly, we're going to see the king avenged. That's our road map through the book of Esther, chapter 1. Three scenes. First, the king flexed, then the king defied, and the king avenged. For a little bit of context, this time in the book of Esther, it is what many will refer to as post-exilic. You see, Israel, they were unfaithful to their covenant obligations that they made with God. They were split and became a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom, they went into Assyrian exile, and many years later, the southern kingdom went into Babylonian exile as a part of God's discipline on his people. Now this exile lasted 70 years. At the time Babylon was the world empire, and then afterwards, the Medes and the Persians, they toppled Babylon. God promised that the exile would end after 70 years, and when Cyrus became king, who's the king of Persia? He issued a decree that the Jews were free to go back to their homeland. See, this in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Well, many Jews returned to Jerusalem, but some stayed. Now, for the book of Esther, we don't know who the author is. And the events that happened, years. An interesting fact about the book of Esther is that it is the only book in the Bible, where God's name is absent. You read the entire book, you're going to look, you're going to ask, where is interesting enough, that interesting fact makes the book more relatable to life in a fallen world. How many of us have asked the question, where is God? When we've heard of a severe sickness or a diagnosis. We've been victims of abandonment, injustice, and hatred. Many of us have asked the question, God, where are you? Are you working? Do you care? Have you deserted us? Or the book of Esther makes it abundantly clear that God sees us. He don't only see all things, he also sees us. And for all who are in Christ, God is for us. The book of Esther makes it abundantly clear that God is always at work for the good of his people. That he is faithful to his promises regardless of what the circumstances look like. Beloved, though God's name is absent, he is certainly present throughout this book. And the work of his providence is evident. Beloved, his hand may be invisible, but his hand is not idle. Esther reminds us that God's providence is pervasive. That it is over all of creation, people, events, and even pagan kings. No one and nothing can thwart God's purposes. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10 says this, that remember what happened long ago, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place, and I will do all my will. As we journey through the book of Esther, We're gonna see courage and compromise, sin and obedience, lamentation and celebration. We're gonna see a dooming edict, a dire circumstance, a desperate people, and a glorious deliverance. Ironies and reversals. We're gonna see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we're also going to see the providence of a faithful God who works all things out to accomplish his purposes as he keeps his promises. Beloved, the book of Esther is to give us hope. And as we read it, it, upon the judgment that we rightfully deserve that we may have life. Because of what Jesus has done, we have gone from weeping to rejoicing. And it causes us to anticipate his coming kingdom just as we sung and we will feast that on that day we will feast in the house of Zion. We will feast and weep no more. Now our story, it begins with a wicked king who thought he ran things. So the first thing we're going to see, the king flexed. Look at verses 1 and 2 and a few others. It says, These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. Verse 3, he held a feast in the third year of his reign. Verse 4, he displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. So, this king, King Ahasuerus, it is the Hebrew name of Xerxes. He was the ruler of a world empire and he ruled for two decades. And the territory of his rule went from modern day Pakistan all the way to northern Asia. This was a time of peace. As we see, he threw a grand party. Y'all, this was the Met Gala of all the Met Galas. It lasted six months. Everybody who was somebody was there. And y'all, this king flexed his power, his wealth, and his glory. You see, the word flexed in the Urban Dictionary is defined as to purposefully brag and show off. In African-American community, people flex showing off their cribs, their kicks, their whips, and their fits. It is an act to where you show off, and the very act of flexing demands that there is an audience to see one's greatness, to see it and to be enamored by what they see. Passerous flexed his power and his glory. The excessiveness continued in verses 5 to 9, where he throws another party, showing off the magnificence of his kingdom. Verse 5 says, At the end of his kingdom, the king held a wheel of the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. Verse 6, White and blue linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar and marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. In verses 7 to 9, you would see that he had drinks out the wazoo, constantly letting people know that drink as much as you want, no restrictions. The description of this man's kingdom is similar to the the description of the tabernacle at the temple. It is elaborate. And y'all, he's showing off the garden of his palace. You only get a section. See, houses in Beverly Hills got nothing on King Ahasuerus's palace. Chip and Joanna Gaines can take notes on how to do interior design based upon what he himself has done with this place. He pulls out all the stops, elegant food and excessive drinks. King's encouragement and his permission allowed anyone, if they wanted to, to get wasted. He permitted for the people to have a good time, even if it was to their own destruction. The reality is he didn't care about them. He only cared about himself, all the people, and he had political aims as he did it. But get this, he flexed, to be seen in order that he may be honored by them, that they may be enamored with him. What we see here is the depiction of sin's effect on the lives of humanity, that it turns one inward to where our focus is only upon ourselves, that we're not only the center of our worlds, but we want to be the center of your world. And the effect It's pearl upon those around you, whether it's in your crib or a city or a country. And the more public the leadership is, the more people who are affected. This king was a wicked king. He had no care for people groups. He had the power to annihilate them, and at the drop of a whim, he would mindlessly agree to do so, as we will see later on in this book. Scripture gives a description of what a good ruler is and is the exact opposite of a Ahasuerus. Second Samuel chapter 23, verses 3 to 4, says the one who rules the people with justice, who rules in the fear of God, is like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless morning, the glisten of rain on sprouting grass. This describes a good king. This doesn't describe a Ahasuerus at all. Even from the scripture reading in Deuteronomy 17, Ahasuerus, don't even hold a candle to that. For this king, he's a pagan, which means there is no fear of God. There's no concern for God. This king wasn't the first to live this way, and he certainly won't be the last. You have wicked rulers who've always existed since the fall only being concerned for themselves. In God's kindness, some rulers are better than others. But throughout the history of humanity, there's never been a perfect. And here we see a king who's committed to boasting, flexing. And the reality is, rulers aren't the only ones who are guilty of flexing. Then... We too, ourselves, are guilty of boasting in and of ourselves and want to show off the things that we have. You don't only have to look to those who are in high places. All you got to do is look on social media and you see people all the time flexing, showing off, boasting. In this evil age, humility is held in contempt and arrogance is celebrated. People want to flex because the glory that comes from it is like a dopamine it hits you you feel something it actually helps you it actually makes you to feel bigger and more important than what you actually are in our fallenness glory is something that all of us long for in the pursuit of it it leads to ruin as it is a road trip where its final destruction its final destination is Humiliation. To where one has a high view of themselves, the scripture says that they will be brought low. The reality is God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Yes. Scripture says that he will not share his glory with anyone. Yes. Beloved, we were not created to possess glory in and of ourselves. We weren't created to boast in about anything that we have for 1 Corinthians 4 says, For what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast? As if you did not receive it. We weren't created to boast in it of ourselves. Instead, we were created not to receive glory, but to give glory to only God who is king over the universe. You know, one of the things I love about Jesus is that he flips the ethics Of this age on its head. In this age, you have unworthy people trying to exalt themselves, where in Christ, you have the only one who is worthy, the only one who is exalted, actually humble himself. Jesus doesn't say, Blessed are those who flex, but he says, Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. The kingdom that he has ushered in, it is not one marked by pride and arrogance, but by love and humility. And by his grace, he has saved us. And so, beloved, what type of people are we to be? Not those who flex, but those who follow our Savior and get down and wash the feet. thought he ran things. Though he flexed, not everyone was enamored with his glory. Look at verses 10 and 11. Transitions to the next scene where we see the king defied, feeling good from the wine. Ahasuerus commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bikta, Abakta, Zithar, and Carcus, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. The king is inebriated. And he wanted to show off his wife. And the very purpose is found in verse 11 where it says, because she was very beautiful. He was drunk. She's beautiful. And he wanted to show her off. The same way he displayed his glory and his wealth previously in the previous section, now he wanted to show off his wife. This is an abuse of kingly authority in headship. See, here he saw his wife as a possession to flaunt for his own personal exaltation. Now, many commentaries differ on the extent by which he he was trying to show her beauty. But what's clear is that you have exploitation, that he literally, the objectification of human beings, and especially women, has been prevalent since the fall to where people are used for their own personal gratification. And, beloved, the dehumanization of women, it is or exploited. They are image bearers, made in the image and likeness of God, worthy of dignity, honor, love, and respect. The dehumanization of women, it happens in the world, but it is to not happen among the people of God. For God has called us out of the world. He tells us to be salt and light in the world. Whereas well, as Christians, we are to be exemplary in how we treat fellow image bearers, particularly women and our sisters in Christ. Beloved, we have the opportunity to push back the darkness, to treat women with honor and the dignity that they themselves are worthy of out of a love for Jesus and a love for them. You see, we are commanded to commend our sisters, to protect them and to honor them in obedience to God. It is to be evident so much so that when the world sees it, they would say, man, that is different and set apart. So the king called his wife. What did Vashti do? Look at verse 12. But Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by the eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. Here you have conflict. The king has been defied. He's been humiliated by his wife and he is burning hot. Beloved, obedience is a good thing except when it results in complicity to sin. In those cases, we are to follow the Direction in the words of the apostles who said in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, that we must obey God rather than people. See, regardless of who entices us to sin or gives a command to sin, whether it's a spouse, a supervisor, a friend, or a world leader, if their command is ever in a head-on collision and in direct opposition of what God has commanded, There's ever a time when we are to choose between whether whether or not we should obey God or whether we should obey man. We are to always choose to obey God for he has the highest authority. He alone. And we obey out of a love for him. In this present evil age, beloved, our faith and faithfulness to Jesus will be tested. We will be asked whether to, we will be asked to conceal Important details for our business to avoid investigation. A spouse may ask us to lie, a friend will try to convince us to partner with them in doing evil. If we're going to follow Jesus, we must be faithful to Him regardless of the circumstances. The Lord himself tells us to fear not those who kill the body, but to fear those, but fear the one who can kill the body and destroy one's soul in hell. Beloved, we must be ready to count the cost. But also have the resolve and know that following Jesus is worth it. It is worth every consequence that we will receive. Because the reality is, Defiance always, always, always results in consequences. It is costly. Which brings us to the third scene. The king avenged. Read verse 13. The king consulted the wise men who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. In verses 13 to 15, the king, he sought appropriate counsel. He was defied by his wife. Now, surrounding yourself with counselors is a, it is good to seek and pursue godly help. For godly counsel can help us in difficult situations, and it can also prevent bad situations from worsening. Truth be told, beloved, I have benefited greatly from godly counsel, whether it's from Pastors or friends or biblical counselors, their encouragement in the midst of the difficulty, them calling me out on my sin, admonishing me to repent and reminding me of the hope of the gospel. Beloved, it is good and has been good for my soul. It is a huge blessing, one we shouldn't take for granted. Now, counsel is good, but not all counsel is good. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 says, Blessed is the one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Which means we need to be careful as to who we give our ears to. We need to be discerning as to whose counsel we're actually receiving. Because, beloved, we want to hear godly counsel. It magnifies Jesus. Where his promises are reminded and we are exhorted to walk in His ways. There's all kinds of counselors out there, and everybody's going to tell you that you need to listen to them. But not everybody counsels with the worldview that is rooted in Scripture. Even those who claim to be Christian counselors don't always counsel with the worldview that's rooted in Scripture. So, beloved, we need to be on guard examining the Scriptures, studying them, and making sure the counsel we receive is consistent with the teaching of God's Word. question for you to consider is, what type of counsel are you receiving? And not only that, but what type of counsel are you giving? Paul makes known in Romans chapter 15, he is confident that the congregation in Rome is able to instruct. Lord, may our instruction be rooted in the teachings of Scripture and not contradicted. It's good to seek counsel. It's good to have friends who give godly counsel. And with that being said, let me talk to the the children in our gathering. I know many of you have friends, which is a great thing. God wants us to enjoy friendships, relationships with other people will help you love God and love others. And we're constantly and easily influenced by our friends. So the question for you to consider is, are you that type of friend? And do you have those kinds of friends who will help you love God and help you love others? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 says, bad company corrupts good morals. And so you want to be a friend who helps people love God and others? Parents, I would say that it is important for us to talk to our, our children about being good friends. Exhorting them to faithfulness in helping them and helping their friends love God and others, and also have those kinds of friends. Encouraging those types of friendships. Ahasuerus. He sought counsel. And in verses 16 to 18, one of his counselors exasperated the situation, made known that what happened is going to have ripple effects all throughout the kingdom, that there will be an uprising in every home in the province, as wives will refuse to submit to their husbands. And so he gives some counsel. Read with me, where he says, If it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to not enter King Ahasuerus' presence. And a royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, so all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. He pretty much tells the king, King, you got to get ahead of this. You got a powerful image to protect. And so you are to flex your power by first banning Vashti from your presence. Show her who is boss. Second, announce that a search will be made for him, for the king to have a new queen. And third, force obedience for all wives to their husbands teaching everyone that defiance will not be tolerated. Here, this counselor, he's concerned about the PR. The irony of all of this is that he's trying to keep all of this concealed, and yet he advised for the king to leak the information. If his goal was to prevent Ahasuerus from looking bad, he failed miserably. Being greatly concerned about his own image and name, want to protect his name from some sort of scandal, he writes a public paper and publishes it, admittedly confessing to his own adulterous relationship. What he did was he actually destroyed his name? And here you see the very same thing happening with this advisor's advice. Well, how did Harass- Ahasuerus respond? Look at verses 21 and 22. The king and his counselors approved the proposal. Crazy. And he followed Mamukin's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in his own script, and to each ethnic group in his own language, that every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Ahasuerus signed off on it. He got his... He avenged himself. Vashti got hers... By being banned, and he coerced unreserved obedience for wives to submit to their husbands. Y'all, this was an unjust law, as it gave husbands the license to dictate their wives however they willed. Now, the Bible, when it comes to marriage, the Bible makes clear that headship belongs to husbands. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Now Ahasuerus' edict is not the very same thing as what's happening in Ephesians chapter 5. It's the permission slip to be domineering or to bully their wives. The exhortation is to submit as unto the Lord. That excludes anything sinful. And Ephesians 5 doesn't only address wives and gives specific exhortations to them. God also speaks directly to husbands and how they are to treat their wives. Verse 25 in Ephesians chapter 5 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Beloved, husbands are to humbly serve and sacrifice for their wives, mirroring Christ, just as Christ has done for his bride, the church. Husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives. Yes, God has made husbands leaders in their homes, and yet their wives are to not suffocate under the leadership of their husbands. The wives instead are to flourish. Blooming and blossoming by the grace of God because they're hus- and gently with their wives. The Bible says that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. To not treat them as an animal to maintain, but to treat them as fine china. Dealing delicately and gently with them as they lead. My single sisters, if you are dating... In your dating relationship, it is important for you to take notice of the character of the one whom you're dating. Their servant leadership. Seeing whether or not they point you to King Jesus with their words and their life. Not only seeing if they point you to Jesus, but also see if they point their church community to him. Those who are around him. Do they point them to Christ? And if the answer is no, I would strongly advise you to flee the other way. End that relationship immediately, as hard as it may be. Do not do it. You see, in a world, and among unbelievers, wives and women, they may be treated shamefully and dehumanized, but these things ought to not happen in the context of the church. Beloved, Jesus' lordship has direct impacts on how we are to interact with our sisters and our wives in the church, in the home, and in society by Christians. Christ loved them and and gave himself up for them, and that dictates how we are to interact with our fellow sisters in the Lord. It'll be valued and appreciated. It is to be a king signed an unjust law, that cannot be revoked, coercing this unreserved obedience. All about exalting himself. And here, we see that Jesus and Ahasuerus couldn't be more different. Ahasuerus, he exalted himself to serve himself the only person he's concerned about, as we see in chapter 1. whereas Jesus? Jesus exalts himself, and it's for the good of others. Beloved, when Jesus exalts himself, it is loving towards others. It is for the good and benefit of others. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. This is a declaration. And he says, no one who comes to me will be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty. Amen. He is exalting himself for the good of others, promising that if you come to him and trust in him, you will be served. You will be satisfied. You will be nourished. What he says is true and the exaltation is for the good of others. Think about Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. Come to me. He's exalting himself. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And what does he offer? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Once again, exalting himself. And what does he say? And you will find rest for your souls. Beloved, Jesus' exaltation is him loving people that we may come to him and believe in him and be forgiven and saved by him. What do you think why he's commanding us to preach his name to the ends of the earth? Because he is the king who died and resurrected from the grave, who is ascended at the right hand of the Father, and he's exhorted so that they can be forgiven, so that they can have salvation so that they can be rescued from judgment. Beloved, Jesus' exaltation of himself, it is always, always, always for the good of humanity. Here, Hasserus. we see is him trying to exploit his wife, where Jesus doesn't exploit his bride. Instead, he laid down his life for the church. To save her. Jesus doesn't intend, nor will he ever try to exploit his bride. Instead, he he died to present the church holy and blameless. To clothe his people in his righteousness, not expose them of anything. Ahasuerus casted out his wife when he was rebelled against, and Jesus will never cast out his people. He will never cast out his bride. Ahasuerus, he oppressed his people, oppressed wives in particular. Jesus came to liberate those who have been oppressed. So much so that he would lay down his life to liberate us from sin's oppression. Ahasuerus, this edict was a burden upon the wives, and Jesus' command is that God's commands are not burdensome. Love, as we journey through life, we're constantly encountering kings and rulers. They are, some are more wicked than others, but none are ever perfect. And oftentimes we are ready for the next one to come. Because unrighteousness is being exposed or revealed or displayed, sometimes signed off into law. We witness unrighteousness and injustice, and we long for a righteous king to come. Beloved, Jesus is that righteous king who is seated at the right hand of the Father. And one day he will get off that throne and he will return. Beloved, when he comes, sin and all of its effects will be completely done away with. His rule will be a kingdom of peace and it will be a place where righteousness dwells for all of eternity. so if you know yourself to not be a Christian, friends, I am glad that you are here. What is your view of Jesus? Things about him. Some believe that he's a tyrant, that he oppresses. Some even think him to be more like a Friends, that is so far from the truth. Jesus is an eternal king who became man and became a servant, and served us by suffering for our sins on the cross, bearing the judgment that we rightfully deserve, freeing us from that judgment and sin's oppression through his death and resurrection. Friends, you may think that Jesus takes life, but instead he lost his, that he may give life. Friends, I will beckon you this very day To trust in Christ. That you may be saved by his grace. For his rule really does lead to life, not death. If you want to talk more, you can talk with any of our members after service. So the chapter ends. You may wonder, where was God actively at work? using the sin and selfishness of this wicked king to set the stage where he will accomplish his purposes and fulfill his plan as he is faithful to his promises. Beloved, it takes faith to know that though I can't always see what God is doing, I know that he is actively at work because he has revealed it in his word. And he's not only actively at work, he is always, always, always at work for the good of his people. Beloved, his hand may be invisible, but his hand is never idle. May we trust him, knowing that he is providentially working to fulfill his purpose in the world and in us. As we look today, look to the day ahead when our king will return. For that is the direction he is taking all of human history. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we praise you for your providence, your sovereignty over all creation. And God, it is good for you are in you. Every Purpose in every plan is always, always, always for the good of those whom you loved and called according to your purpose. God, we see this wicked ruler in Esther chapter 1, and we praise you that you are a righteous king. That your commands are good and for our good. That it leads to life in the fullness of life. God, we praise you for King Jesus, who doesn't oppress but gives life, who liberates, who sustains, who guides, who preserves, who is interceding now at your right hand, interceding for his people. Father, we long for the day where unjust laws will be completely done away with, sin will be permanently done away with, and righteousness will permanently dwell. For we know that that day is as sure as to come, for it is as sure as Jesus' resurrection from the grave. Come, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.